Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talk by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners, helping to keep you up to date with developments in the arboriculture industry. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory with today's talk by Brian French on wildlife retention. It was originally presented at the 2016 ISA International Conference in Fort Worth, Texas. Thank you. Yeah, my, so my name is Brian French. I'm from Portland, Oregon. Uh, I've been climbing for about uh, 17 years. I'm, a, I'm an arborist. Uh, I've worked for many different companies. I'm a contracting arborist. I contract with different companies around our area and, uh, and throughout the state of Washington and abroad. Um, and some of my work focuses on wildlife habitat. So what is wildlife? I'm going to read off the board here. You can read with me. Wildlife is defined as wild animals collectively. The native fauna of a region Generally, the term wildlife refers to non-domesticated animals. So we're not talking about, today, we're not talking about cats and dogs and uh, household pets, domesticated. Urban wildlife is wildlife that can live or thrive in our urban areas. And that's significant when we're talking about arboriculture as arborists and where we practice in our urban areas. Some urban wildlife are synanthropic meaning they are ecologically associated with humans. Different types of urban areas support different kinds of, of wildlife. So synanthropic species are species that, when we move from one area to another area, or we develop an urban area, these are, these are types of animals and plants that can uh, survive in those, in those uh, circumstances, such as like a feral pigeon or some of our squirrels. The success to these, to all wildlife species, really is, has a lot to do with how they adapt, their adaptation, um, their habitat, um, longevity, uh, urbanization, how, how urbanization affects them, and their evolutionary rate. So how, how many um, offspring are they producing a year? That can, that can vary. Habitat. Habitat is an ecological or environment, environmental area that is inhibited by a particular species of animal or plant or other type of organism. A habitat is made up of, of factors such as soil, moisture, range of temperature, availability to light, presence of food, shelter, and protection from predators. So in this room right here, we have designed a specific type of habitat that we're comfortable with. We like our, temp we like our temperature to be between 65 and 70 degrees. That's what I prefer anyway. Um, 
We like protection from, from predators and from, other, from shielding ourselves from weather to have a constant, um, a constant temperature and arid environment. So we build walls and structures. Um, and the way that we design this is uh, made up historically. You know, maybe we started in caves and then we wanted, you know, we, we definitely find our suitable habitat and create and change our environment to, to how uh, we are comfortable. Wildlife species are just the same. So temperature can affect uh, species just the same as it does us. So many birds prefer to have their uh, entrance or their cavity facing a specific aspect or direction. If it's in the south or southwestern um, uh, direction, that may be exposed to more sunlight and more heat and then um, dehydrate their young. So they may prefer to have their, um, their opening or their cavity exposed to a north or northeastern aspect. And that, that's, uh, we'll get into that in a minute. Common causes for habitat destruction, urbanization, development, invasive flora is huge. Do you guys have any invasive species here in Texas? I don't know anywhere that doesn't have an invasive species anymore, right? It's just, that's just something that we all deal with. It's very expensive. Uh, deforestation, arborists. Um, I'll highlight that, arborists. So when we're talking about urban areas, we have an effect on wildlife populations, especially with po populations that live only in cavities in trees, only in deadwood or decomposing parts of trees. They don't live anywhere else. And we'll talk about what those species are here in a minute. Um, some common urban forest management practices, such as deadwooding everything in town, that can have a great effect on your wildlife species in your area. Uh, fire and pollution and, um, and roads as well. So what we're going to be talking about today is um, something that we don't have in our program yet. So we don't, we, if, when you take your certified arborist exam, there isn't anything described in there about regu regulatory laws here in the United States as citizens or non-citizens that protect specific wildlife species. Here's a protected species, if you recognize this. Have you ever seen a tree that looks like this before? It's got a hollow, it's large, it's what, within 15 feet of a, of a target or a building? What would our risk assessment be for this tree? Is this a tree that we might consider for removing? Have you ever been in conflict with wildlife Wildlife that only lives in trees. That's perfect. So I just had a comment from a gentleman here who said what he would do with this tree. Hang in there, buddy. Perhaps if the, um, if the tree is found stable down low, is he would, he would take the, the crown out or top the tree. Um, I, I prefer to use the term crown removal, but remove the crown out of the tree if this, part, if this tree needed to be taken down above this area because of that cavity, that we would leave this remaining part or try to leave that remaining part, that would be a, a practice I would recommend. So let's talk about the Migratory Bird Act. So Migratory Bird Act of 1918 
states that taking, killing, possessing, and any manner of pursuing, hunting, capturing, moving, uh, any, any sort of impact like that is illegal, and you can be held accountable for up to $15,000 in fines and imprisonment. Did you know that? Did you know that almost any bird you see in town is a protected species? Let's take a look at what that list might look like. Here's some protected species. Some popular protected species. Bald eagle, I think we can all agree that's a protected species, right? Um, but what about the American robin down here? Did you know that that's a protected species? American robin and American crow. Did you know that American crow is a protected species? How many folks here have worked in a tree and ran into an American crow nest or American robin nest? It's a fairly common bird across uh, North America. Now let's take it a step further and look at cavity-dwelling species, because these are the ones that we, if we want to remove a tree or prune part of a tree, and this species is living inside of the tree, we can't work around that necessarily, right? If we want to remove the tree and they're living in the tree. So here are some uh, cavity-dwelling species, uh, wood duck, turkey vulture, California condor, American kestrel, chickadees, all the woodpeckers, um, all of the, the owl, and, um, and some flycatcher and western bluebird. So we have a lot of different species that exist only in trees. They don't live in buildings. They don't live on bridges. They don't live on rock faces. Um, some of, actually, a couple of these do, uh, like California condor. But they're also tree cavity dwelling species. But most of these only live in cavities in, in trees. So California condor. This is a bird um, that lives in large cavities in California. Uh, here, and this is a, not only a protected species, but it's still an endangered species. This is a uh, Sequoia sepervirens on the California coast, and this is, a uh, this is a Sequoia dendrum giganteum in the Sierra Nevada area. Both were affected by what we call a crown fire, which is a fire that leaves the ground and actually travels through the crown of the forest and burns across the tops, but the uh, lower parts of the tree are not affected by that necessarily by that fire. So these trees took 100, 500, 1,000 years to get this big. They, that fire had to be present and to burn, and then the remaining part had to continue to live to support this type of a cavity for that type of bird. How common do you think that is? What would our assessment be of that cavity? Do we consider the fact that that is important habitat for protected species? Not to say that trees should not be removed if they are a threat to public uh, health, but how often do we consider the value of cavities in our urban areas? Is that part of our decision-making when we are doing tree risk assessments 
or recommending tree removal. So knowing that our impacts every day, they can be positive or negative, just like between you and I and each other, our impacts, um, no matter what our intentions are, we're going to have an impact on each other. When we go out and work and practice in our urban area, that same rule um, works with us and our practices. We can have positive or negative impacts. So this is a bird that was, well, I should state first, um, extinction of wild species, wildlife species, and um, effects to their populations. The greatest cause for that worldwide at this time is loss of habitat. This is a, an example of a species that's now extinct. It's the Carolina parakeet. This was native in this area and in Texas as well, throughout southern United States and the eastern United States. Um, and this bird was declared extinct in, in the 1930s. And the reason that this bird went extinct had to do with loss of habitat. It's a cavity-dwelling species. It only lives in cavities in large trees. Not cavities in small trees, cavities that take time to get large. And so that's a great value for this particular, or was a great value for this particular species. So how do we reduce our impacts? Um, the first and most important to, to me that I can share with you, the first, the most important reason is to know whether it's the breeding season or not. Do you know what the breeding seasons are for wildlife species here in this area or in your own area? Do we consider that with our work and our practices? Um, we can have a, a biologist or a wildlife rehabilitation center on call in case we run into um, conflict with wildlife. We have emergency services for other reasons. Should we not also have that available for our crews and our companies when we're working uh, in the field? Perform a pre-work inspection, preferably uh, during the time of the estimate when you know, before, before the crane arrives, <laughs> before the crew is sent out, before the guy climbs in the tree and says, oh, there's birds flying in and out of this tree, it's a woodpecker, this is a protected species, we're gonna need to reschedule this next month, and the tree is not in imminent threat. That can be really expensive and frustrating, right? So finding, um, Finding that beforehand and being cognizant and aware of what's, what's around us with wildlife species and knowing those regulations that we are required to follow would be uh, an important first step. But also uh, being aware during our, our time, the time that we're working, because these things can change as, um, throughout the day. Um, also know that, uh, I don't know if anybody's done this here before, even with good intention, cutting an active nest with a cavity-dwelling species out of a tree and hanging it into another tree so that we can continue to do the work that we're doing requires a license and is not legal for us without that license to do that. What is that license? Uh, you'd have to go through, it, that varies with states and, and uh, regulations, but um, there are people you can call they're probably going to say you need to reschedule this for, for another time. But what you don't want to do is be on the 5 o'clock news or suffer fines uh, like these. 
right? Um, and you know, I don't know what the number would be. Let's say 99 out of 100 times, you're probably going to be fine. Um, but these uh, regulatory systems and the, the, the agencies that respond, they are responsive. They're not proactive about this, so it's really um, the public awareness, which is changing, right? So people are becoming more aware of their habitat and their towns, and they're making phone calls like this. There's actually some municipalities that are putting moratoriums or are discussing putting moratoriums on pruning practices during breeding season in their, in their area. Um, and that would have a great effect on our services, right? Um, and then, you know, getting training. We can get training. We can contact our, our local wildlife care centers. We're not ornithologists. Or unless, are there any ornithologists in the room? So we're not ornithologists, but we can connect with ornithologists. We can connect with wildlife biologists, and we can get more information to include into our programs with the services that we're offering our community. So reducing impacts. Um, breeding, breeding season, uh, this, this changes, or this is different in different parts of the country and different regions. The um, breeding seasons are most commonly between the February and August period of time. So that's when you would want to be more aware um, and, and considering that with the type of, of work that you're doing than maybe other times of year or postponing work until other times of year in specific situations. This isn't every day, everything that you do, unless you do big removals every day throughout the entire year, then maybe that would affect you more. Yes? That's right, yeah. When, the question is, when I say breeding season, am I talking about nesting season? And I'm using, I'm kind of covering that whole uh, period of time. So um, yeah, uh, when reproduction is occurring um, and nestlings are fledging, that, that'd be the period of time. So also understanding the uh, nesting behavior of birds. So is this a tree nesting bird? Is this a ground nesting bird? Um, or or um, a mammal. Um, is it shrub nesting? So like scrub jay is a type of bird that likes to hang out in hedges and build its nests in hedges. Has anybody run into scrub jay in a hedge before? Right? Primary nesting seasons, um, these durations are different in different parts of the country. And you can see here, between Washington and Texas that um, elevation and, well, basically, like the continental divide has um, an effect. Temperature and the range has an effect on when those breeding seasons are. So um, you would want to consider that in your area. So habitat trees. What is a habitat tree? I do illustrations, and I like to, I like to draw because it's a good way to convey what I'm thinking in, in, an, in a message um, to, to kind of show what I'm visualizing anyway. So this is an illustration I did of a big leaf maple. Um, and we have here some features of a wildlife habitat tree. Um, and this really has to do with how we value. So when we're looking at a tree, is this a tree that we might want to consider for removal? Anyone? 
right? You might, you might be like, you know, we need to monitor, we really need to look at this. I, I'm going to recommend a tree risk assessment. Let's really take a look at this tree because there's some things going on. But how do we value uh, habitat? We, these may be points against the tree to keep it standing, but these are also points uh, for habitat, right? And are we considering that? That fungal fruiting bodies and uh, moss mats and vertical space, delaminating, delaminating bark, I'll talk about bats here in a minute, but delaminating barks is, bark is really important habitat. Uh, as well as uh, cavities and sap run, the, the, whole, the whole structure itself and all of the, the attributes. So habitat, um, here's another illustration. I'm just trying to, uh, so there's a little man here that I drew. He's, he's walking through time. That's, that's the idea. So I have uh, 10 years here with a 10-year-old tree. Um, this is the same tree. He's walking through time, and he walks 400, 400 years and maybe 400 feet of time. And um, I don't have the actual numbers for this, and I imagine that if I was to find actual uh, units or a way to measure habitat compared uh, from large trees to small trees, that this line would actually um, it would, it would have a different uh, curve. But, I uh, just wanted to illustrate that it, there's an infinite amount of young trees that can't do what one old tree can do when we're talking about ecological uh, benefits. A condor and most of those birds that I showed that only live in trees, they can't live in a 10-year-old tree. Um, so what, what kind of traits increase with age? We're talking about structural complexity the abundance of cavities and the height of where the cavities actually exist. Some birds like to um, build their nests low to the ground in a tree, and some, some birds only like to build their nests above 60 or 70 feet. So we need to allow that tree to get big enough to even offer that type of habitat. Uh, source of food changes, diversity, even shade, um, the root systems, uh, certainly increase, um, and uh, the de decay, deadwood and decaying substrate as well. So hollow logs, this is a type of, this is a, a habitat feature that I feel like we don't, we don't have much of in our urban areas anymore. Do you guys, have, do you guys leave hollow logs on the, on the properties of, of clients? Typically not, right? It's a trend. That we, have, that, that we have been a part of, right? We take that away. So we, we cut it up into firewood, or we uh, run it through the chipper. It goes to the, the bark mulch recycling place. We turn it into mulch, and then we bring it back as uh, mulch, which really isn't uh, any good for this type of habitat. Is there a way to leave some of those on site? Can we value that? These are really important, especially for um, for terrestrial uh, mammals and salamander and amphibians, we have a real problem, a worldwide problem right now about the numbers of our amphibians. Our amphibians are, are disappearing. Uh, leaving some of our woody material on the ground can really help with that. 
How does it, does anybody want to guess on how a, a log becomes hollow? Right, so uh, perhaps uh, injury and it takes a lot of time. That's right. Um, we also need, we need the presence of a pathogen to actually break that down. So we have to have the presence of a pathogen, we have to have the right environment, and we have to have a susceptible host. If all of those things come together, and we have a lot of time, we can have a, um, a hollow that develops in a tree. We also need a living specimen, because once this tree falls down or dies, it doesn't hollow out and grow sapwood around that, that hollow space anymore. Right? Once, it, once that happens and it falls down to the ground, it actually breaks down from the outside in. So we can't take a, a tree and make a hollow log out of it on the ground. It needs to be living and standing. So is there a way to recognize the value of that with the work that we do when we're looking at the ecological benefits um, of hollow logs and hollows? Bark flange is, uh, is another type of habitat that is really important. Um, and this is when I was talking about delaminating bark or bark separating. So um, if we even have a large branch in a tree that may be a, a hazard or danger, dangerous or have a higher likelihood of failure, we may find that we can even reduce that part of the tree and keep the remaining dead part um, if we can show that that part is actually stable enough um, at this time, which may be require monitoring later. But we have uh, bat species that only roost in areas like that. So as that part dies and the bark separates, there's a space that starts to develop in these big, um, or hickory, uh, shagbark shag hickory is a, is a one that they actually do this in living uh, tree or living parts of the trees. But most trees, it's going to be after that part dries out and dies, you get that that space that develops, and these bats they roost in there. Now they these bats um, that we have in North America, we have several different or we have many different uh, species of bat in North America and in myotis, but um, most of these they will hibernate in larger areas, and then throughout their feeding season and during the, the summer, they will use these as day and night uh, roosting uh, places. And many of our bats are also disappearing and are endangered. The really cool thing about bats is with our, with our little brown bat, for instance, in Oregon, um, we have... Uh, we have a lot of mosquitoes. Do you guys have mosquitoes here? Pretty much anywhere in, in the US, you can probably not travel too far and find find mosquito population. Um, bats eat up to 1,000 an hour, 600 to 1,000 mosquitoes an hour, over 6,000 um, 6, mosquitoes a night, one bat. So um, they're very important. They are endangered, their populations are plummeting, they have issues, and we continue to cut that habitat out of our urban, rural, or even urban wildlife interface. Do we consider that? Do we know that? If you're wondering about um, species that are endangered or aren't endangered, 
I recommend going to the IUCN Red List. This is a, a site that will give you the uh, conservation status of each species. Uh, you can use this in your report writing, but if you're looking at whether a, a species is protected and you're wondering if it's um, of a specific conservation um, or valued uh, status, you can go here for that information and know if you're going to be in, um, in conflict or not. Creating cavities is the next kind of step that I want to take us in this talk right now. Do, can I get the time? Minutes, thank you. Uh, creating cavities, so we can leave a lot of habitat, but how do we actually uh, work to enhance the amount of habitat that we have? So when we're creating cavities in trees, we want to consider the following. The species, both the tree and the, the animal. Some birds and some wildlife don't want to live in one kind of tree, but they actually prefer another kind of tree. The cavity size and dimensions, this is specific for every species. Every species has a different size hole in, ca in cavities that it wants to have for in its entrance hole. Larger predators can get into a hole in the, in the opening or the entrance, so they pick smaller ones that they can fit into. The size of cavity, the orientation, is it horizontal or vertical? The distance from ground, distance from water, um, is it being used by a primary excavator or a secondary cavity user? the aspect and direction, the biome, and potential predators. So there's a lot for us to learn about these species that we're working with or around every day. So what is a primary cavity user? This is a, an excavator, like a woodpecker, flicker, uh, chickadee, uh, nut, nuthatch. And secondary cavity users move in after the primary cavity users move out the following year. And they, they rely on those excavators to create this, these cavities so that they can move in because they don't have the ability to tap into the wood the way that, that uh, woodpeckers do. And these would be uh, squirrel, barred owl, kestrel, wren, wood duck. Here's a short video. Of, uh, of wood duck. You might recognize his voice. The female is leaving her nest high favorites. in the treetops. David it's her job to lead the way. It's a long way down for a maiden flight. A few calls of encouragement. Are this is mandarin duck. It's, uh, it's actually very similar to our wood duck. Uh, here, here in the U.S. The distance from water is really important for this species, too. This is the day after they hatch. There are still two missing. So after making this leap, they're going to travel to the nearest source of water. She found this location because 
the orientation, the distance from water, she's considering predators, she's considering all of those things all have to come into play just so she can uh, lay her eggs and, um, and continue to reproduce. So to understand that, what I've done is created a habitat matrix for our area in the Pacific Northwest. And I recommend you, uh, if, if you're interested, you can spend some time and do this in your area. I am working on a book um, that I hope to have done in the next couple years. I don't know if anybody else is working on books, but it's, it's quite an endeavor. Um, so what this does is offers kind of a guideline to where if an arborist wanted to create a habitat, they could take this guideline and say, oh yes, Mrs. You know, or Hel Hel Helen homeowner, Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Jones, uh, you have cavities in this area. We do need to remove this tree because it's dead and it's near power lines. However, we can leave it 10 feet tall and chickadees can live in this, in this cavity and we can carve with our chainsaws. We can actually create that home for you and we'll charge for it. And, she, and she'll love it, promise. Um, so this is kind of what that looks like. I can take my saw, I've, I've, I've got about uh, 300 or so cavity uh, habitat snags that I've created in the Portland area over the last couple years. I've charged for every single one of them. And um, up, up in the tree, I can use my saw to uh, bore cut and make this cavity for using those, those same criteria in dimensions uh, that we just talked about. It's been very successful. I have been monitoring and going back and talking to folks and it's been successful. Um, so habitat snags, to create a habitat snag, we mentioned, or we said topping earlier. I like to use the word crown removal. Um, I think topping has a specific purpose for using that word and I don't think that it applies when we're um, uh, trying to make habitat snags. We can reduce, we can stub, we can girdle trees. But what I did here is I took that information uh, from the habitat matrix and I, I put it into um, uh, kind of a, a height uh, illustration here showing a 40 foot snag and where these different species um, prefer to, uh, to, to nest so that if I'm near a house and this tree I can have 40 feet tall, uh, but another tree I can only have five feet tall, I can look at what species exist in that range and what species exist in that range and I'll create that habitat for that reason. This is a habitat uh, snag I made for my neighbor a couple years ago. This tree died, it's a hemlock near power lines. And um, we actually, I, I scarred the top up and then used my saw to create these mimicked kind of uh, excavation site that you would see uh, woodpeckers do. I just used the tip of my saw to do that. And then created a lightning scar down to uh, what I thought kind of made it more attractive. Thanks. Um, I also put a sign in front of it. I'll show you what my signs look like. And I've seen, um, at, you know, at first I got a couple really good compliments. Uh, people saw it and they were like, oh my god, what happened? That's, that's awesome. It must look really real then, right? Um, and then some other people uh, wanted to know uh, what, what arborists they had hired and if they were going to come back to finish the job. And so that gave me uh, um, 
kind of the idea to create, to create signs so that we, uh, I, I feel like it's really important that people, this isn't normal. We don't do this all the time yet. Um, I'm doing this more in my area, but by signing that and having a sign that says like wildlife habitat um, in progress and what is actually happening, uh, I did do that. I don't have a picture of it here, but within a week, there were some boys walking by with their backpacks, kind of slapping each other's backpacks and walking to school. And the older boy looked at the younger boy and kind of pointed at the tree, read the whole thing, pointed up at the tree. They sat there and had a discussion for about 10 minutes about the habitat and the birds that are going to be moving in. And, um, and that's, that's really, um, it can be really educational and it can be positive in your community. This tree is going to be monitored. I'm going to continue to monitor it. Monitor it. Right now, it's, it's very stable. I'd like to say it's more stable now than it was when it had a live crown. Um, so when I'm doing that, I shake the trees. I'll use pull, t I'll pull tests um, by putting, installing a rope in the tree and pulling on it. Um, and check the, the condition of the tree. And so. Um, this one here, this is an older uh, snag in the Lake Oswego area near Portland. Uh, the height is 15 feet. The DBH is 11 inches, which is totally fine for some species. The assessment was staple. The excavator was flicker. I found one next door to that house that was similar and found uh, similar information about that. This is the sign I like to use um, that I created. So. Um, uh, different cities and different towns, different counties, um, and wildlife agencies that have signs that you can use or you can create your own. So I'm going to leave you with some good practices here. Um, leave habitat when possible, right? Knowing, if, we, if we know what habitat is, then we can leave it. If we don't understand or know what habitat is, then that, that would be really difficult. So I encourage you to learn more about habitat and different species that depend on deadwood. Creating habitat when possible. Use vegetable oil for bar oil. Lose, use low impact techniques and wear gloves because our sense that we, if we're eating a sandwich, um, um, a Reuben, and we go and work on this cavity, we're actually attracting uh, scents for predators. Consider what species may be attracted. Educate others about the importance of habitat. My clients really, really like this. Most of them really enjoy this. And the ones that don't, I don't pressure them to do this type of work. Contact authorities when appropriate. And consider the season. The most important thing, once again, is consider the season that you're doing work in trees in general and know when breeding season is and, and avoid uh, conflict with wildlife. Thank you. This concludes Brian French's talk on wildlife retention. To learn more, you can find additional information at the ISA web store, including Oaks in the Urban Landscape and Planning the Urban Forest. If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to today's talk, visit the ISA online store and select Online CEU Quizzes. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907.
Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.